Worried about birds crashing into windows? Maybe you should be. Window collisions are one of the largest human-caused ways for birds to die in built environments. Some people put decals on their windows so birds can see the glass, but new research shows that it only works if the decals are on the outside, not the inside of the window. The more you know. This is Pulse Check. I'm Ben Leonard. New York Mayor Eric Adams said Monday that the city is ending its vaccine mandate for municipal workers. Vaccination will be optional for city workers beginning on Friday, and workers who were fired for refusing the vaccine can reapply. The World Bank's new pandemic fund announced Friday that it is gauging interest for $300 million in financing for developing countries to better prepare for and respond to future pandemics. Low- and middle-income countries can express interest by February 24th. It's looking for products to invest in about strengthening disease surveillance and early warning, laboratory systems, and public health workforce capacity. And Adam Kankerin is here to talk about his exit interview with David Kessler, who most recently served as the chief science officer for the White House's COVID response. How are you doing, Ben? Yeah, pretty good. So I read your story about David Kessler. Um, I know he might not be necessarily a household name like you know Dr. Fauci, but he was one of the driving forces behind the COVID response. Can you walk me through a little bit more about his background? He really was, yeah. So David Kessler has had a long career in Washington and in politics. He was the FDA commissioner under two presidents, the distinction being they were two presidents of different parties. Uh, he started under George H.W. Bush and then was running the Food and Drug Administration under Bill Clinton as well. Um, after that, he has been you know, a professor. He's been in, in academia. And when COVID shut down the country in mid-March 2020, David Kessler was one of Joe Biden's first calls for advice on what to do, how to handle this as a candidate, uh, as a presidential candidate back then, and then also how to formulate Biden's own plan for responding to COVID if he was elected president. From that day on, Kessler was essentially by Biden's side for the next nearly three years. He was uh, an advisor on the campaign. He was an advisor during the transition and when they were drawing up you know, this big blueprint for tackling COVID and ending the pandemic. And then once Biden took office, he became the chief science officer to the COVID response. And essentially what that meant is that he was overseeing this massive national drive to develop and distribute the vaccines that would help us kind of get out of the emergency era of of this crisis. He stepped down a few weeks ago. And so this was the first extended interview that he's given uh, since leaving government about that period uh, advising the president on the pandemic. And, you know, obviously we're in a different place than when we were three years ago or even a year ago with COVID. But, you know, how does he feel about where we are during this point during the pandemic? It's a bit of a mixed bag. I think, you know, overall what came through during the interview is that Kessler is very proud of the progress that we have made and what we've seen in terms of going from a really deadly virus and disease to something that now the vast majority of Americans feel like they can live with and resume their everyday lives. And that, you know, he told me was a testament to the ability to develop these highly effective vaccines and have treatments uh, and have testing out there and create essentially this apparatus that we've never had before, something on a scale that he said, you know, we may never see again. On the other hand, he did say there's still plenty of work to do. You know, we're coming out of a period that was really well-funded when it came to the response. Now that money has dried up and some of the concerns he still has is, you know, how do we continue to make sure that people have access 
to these tools? And how do we make sure that we are keeping up with the virus as it evolves, as it mutates? I know he acknowledged that the administration made some mistakes at key points during the response. Um, what were some of those? One of the big ones that he singled out was saying early on after the vaccines had rolled out that uh, if you got a vaccine, ultimately you couldn't infect anybody else. Essentially that the mm. vaccines would stop transmission of COVID. Now, that may have been the belief at the time, uh, but obviously that turned out not to be true. And it was one mm -hmm. of, in his mind, the turning points in terms of faith in the COVID response, trust in vaccines. And once that damage was done, you know, he said one thing he's learned being in government for so long is that in these situations, you only get one shot to get it right. And there's no going back. There's no do-overs. And that was the one he singled out as you know, really a damaging mistake in the arc of this pandemic response. On the trust front, I saw in the story that he said he wished he could have gone on Tucker Carlson to talk about vaccines. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting moment because I had asked, I said, you know, look, what about these folks, lawmakers, pundits who have a big platforms to be spreading misinformation and injecting kind of doubt into the situation? And he said, you know, Tucker Carlson was the one person who early on he would have loved to go on and, and debate, mainly because he felt like, you know, there was a period uh, where if he came on armed with facts and armed with information that one, he might be able to persuade Tucker Carlson and two, he might be able to persuade his audience that, you know, the vaccines by and large were effective and that they should go out and get them. But obviously there was a, a, a small kind of window he felt for that. And now that is that's likely closed. Well, this was really interesting. Thanks so much for coming on, Adam. Anytime. Thank you. Representative David Schweikert, a Republican from Arizona, is co-chair of the Telehealth Caucus, meaning he's one of the leading telehealth advocates in Congress. He was also recently named chair of the Ways and Means Oversight Subcommittee. I met with Schweikert in his Capitol Hill office to talk about how technology can become a bigger part of healthcare delivery and what his plans are as subcommittee chair. This is a part of our conversation I wanted to highlight about using technology to make telehealth more interactive. There's some articles out there saying as it's growing and they're cleaning up the modeling and it's sampling of data, what happens when two years from now, I can pick this up, you have a smartwatch on your wrist. Yeah. Um, so I have my smartwatch and it's watching my temperature, my heart rhythm, my O2, these things. Um, the thing I can lick that or spit on or urinate on or whatever, it's our yeah. blow in and gives me an avatar mm. that looks like whoever my favorite television doctor is because I want Marcus Welby's long before yeah. your time. Yeah. Um, and I have a conversation with it saying, can you analyze the data coming off my body, the breath biopsy I just gave you, what's wrong with me? Yeah. And then do you allow it to write the script? Mm -hmm. yeah. That, just starting to think about that as the future of telehealth is a revolution. That's really interesting. Yeah. Do you think people like that? You know? No. Oh, people will love the public. Look, telehealth was one of the most lobbied against policies on Capitol Hill for yeah. years and years and years. Oh, it's going to be the end of the world. Grandma yeah. won't be able to work her FaceTime. <laughs> Turns out grandma knew how to work FaceTime. Yeah. 
And grandma loved not having to drive down to the doctor's office or urgent care center just to get her prescription renewal or talk about something that was ailing her. It's about the money. What happens when you're wearing the technology? The next generation or the two generations or three generations of that from now, you wear a smartwatch too. I do. I really need to talk about them. I should start wearing one. Um, is that actually the future of its telehealth? Yeah. Um, and is telehealth talking to a person or is it having my data analyzed and then telling me what I'm doing well, what I'm doing wrong? Yeah. Because it's monitoring your body 24 hours a day. It's not... I feel crappy today, it's, hey, we're tracking this, you should eat more spinach, or whatever the hell it is. That's a model that fits into my future of if we're going to have the disruption of cures, maybe one of the things also we can do is use the data coming off our body and the world where healthcare is constant. It's always with us. It's always you know, a push button away from me. It's not, I have to set up an appointment and do this. It's it's me. It's 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 my watch. It's it's the thing I blow into. It's the phone I'm carrying. Yeah. It's it's living data, and it can tell me saying, David, you really should do this. Or when was the last time you took fiber or did this or yeah. that? I mean, it, sorry, you can you can picture it, and that's a much more elegant vision of accessibility of a society that's healthier. And it's really smart economics. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Reese is our producer. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Dalton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ahmed is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Ben Leonard. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. Subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening.